Well, good morning, South Winds. Let's start out by saying it again. God is good and all the time. He is good. He is good. He is good. Well, this is week two in our study in Paul's letter to the Philippians called Joyful. And I want to remind you, in case you don't know, um, that we have a place uh, to take notes, message notes there in the app. And uh, you can use that if it serves you this morning. And as we get into our, our study today, I want to start by just saying this. In every season of life, the Bible makes it crystal clear that God wants his people to be people of joy. Amen? But I'm thinking you would get it that it's just so much more crucial now during this time that we're living through that we be people of joy. And what we're going to be looking at as we continue to consider what it means to be joy-filled people is we're going to look today at the essential role that our minds play in experiencing a joy-filled life. I'm calling this message a beautiful mind because I want to show you that joy comes from far more from how we think than how we feel. In fact, I'll just put it this way. Joyful people think differently than people who aren't joyful. Joyful people see life from God's perspective. Joyful people always think, well, whatever happens to me, God has a plan. God is in control. Joyful people look at life and they always ask, well, what is God doing in my life right now? And because joyful people think differently, as a result, they can know joy, they can know peace, no matter what happens. And the kind of life that joy-filled people live, I, I think it's the kind of life all of us want to live, it always begins with how we think. And then I want to suggest this to you, the way that joy-filled people think, well, it shows up most clearly whenever they face problems. If you've got your Bibles out, open, um, or on your device, you might flip to the end of Philippians, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, because we're going to look at two key passages in Philippians 4 before we get to our main text today in Philippians 1, because I want you to be seeing how Paul thought. The Apostle Paul was a human being just like us, and yet he thought about life and its challenges in a way that few of us do. And here's what Paul writes, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And let me just ask you on this, this beautiful, beautiful morning, does that actually make sense to you? I mean, how reasonable is it to tell someone that they should never worry? I mean, how could Paul say that? And the answer is it had to do with how he thought. See, if you're going you're gonna to do what Paul says, I'm going to let you know up front, you're going to need two things. And the first thing you're going to need is a problem. Because if you never have a problem, you never have an opportunity uh, to learn how not to worry. So I just have to ask, how many of you have at least one problem where you know where you can find one? How many of you are, are sitting next to someone who looks like they have a problem? I have to ask it, how many of you are sitting next to your problem, right? See, here's the thing. We think anxiety is caused by our problems, and so we say, you know, if God wants me to worry less, then he should just give me fewer problems. But here's the thing. It doesn't work that way, okay? Joyful living 
is far more about how we think. Uh, a number of years ago, a psychologist named Albert Ellis developed a model for understanding how people respond to life's problems, and he called it the ABCs of emotional life. And A stands for antecedents, and, and this is the, 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 um, the things that happen to us. This is my circumstances. This is my situation. Then C, I'm going to skip to C, C stands for consequences. These are the outcomes of my circumstances. And Ellis says the great illusion in life is that what happens to me, my circumstances, well, that controls how I feel. And so if good things happen to me, if I get a raise or it's a nice day like today or, you know, someone pays me a compliment, then I feel good. But if something bad happens, then I'm down and, and, and I'm just at the mercy of my circumstances. But in between the antecedents and the consequences, Ellis says is B, which stands for beliefs, my beliefs about what happened to me. And it's, it's my beliefs about what happens to me that ultimately determines the outcome of my life. It's my beliefs that termin, determine the way that I feel. And, and you've seen this. This is why two different people can be in precisely the same situation, can experience identical circumstances, and they can have diametrically opposite responses because they have different beliefs. I'll give you an example. I think this explains the difference between cats and dogs. See, a dog looks at his circumstances and says, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you care for me. You must be God. But a cat says, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you care for me. I must be God. See, same antecedents, different beliefs. Completely different set of consequences. In Philippians 4.13, Paul tells us what he believed about any circumstance that came into his life. And if you read the context, you'll see he's talking about the hardships he's facing. And he makes these, um, this amazing statement which tells us how he thinks about life. Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul says, whatever I have to face, I can face because God is in control. God is working. God has a plan. And when you have that conviction inside, the reality is there is nothing that can threaten the joy and the peace that are guarding your mind. Because then it's not about how good or bad your circumstances are. You see, this leads us to the second thing we need to not be anxious about anything. And that is a renewed mind, a renewed mind. Now, some of you may recognize that the message title comes from the 2001 uh, Oscar award-winning movie starring Russell Crowe. It's actually based on a book published a few years earlier by the same title. And maybe you remember it. It's, it's about the life of a, this brilliant Nobel Prize-winning physicist from Princeton who suffered all of his life from paranoid schizophrenia. And in this broken, fallen world, the reality is all of us struggle at times with our thoughts, sometimes with knowing what is truly true and knowing what is false. And what I'm suggesting is when our minds know that God is in control, then we can live lives filled with joy and peace. Then we can, therefore, face whatever it is we have to face. And when we can do that, that is truly a beautiful mind. And I think we all want that. Now, with this in mind, we're going to work our way through Philippians 1, verses 12 
through 26. And I want to show you as we do this, some of the, uh, I'll call them the contours of Paul's beautiful mind, how he thought, and then the kind of joy that this kind of thinking unleashed in his very difficult life. And I want to keep reminding you, I want you not to forget it. You know, some of us think we're suffering today because we're sitting outside and it's, you know, we, we can't go inside. But Paul had such a more difficult life than we do. You know, I was looking around as getting ready to preach, and I, I realized we actually have um, here in this crowd right now a couple, at least a couple of people who have uh, spent their careers working in our, our prison system in some way or another. Uh, many more of you are first responders of different kinds. And I was just thinking, you know, we think of prison as a terrible place, and it is. But the thought that occurred to me, as bad as our prisons may be, what Paul experienced was far worse. And I don't want you to forget that. I don't want you to, to go through this study of Philippians and thinking it's all about being happy and joyful and it's so much fun and it's so exciting. As we're thinking about this, as we're working through what Paul is telling us, never forget, never leave that Paul was writing this from a prison, chained to a Roman guard. Never forget the life that Paul lived as he experienced following Christ. Again, he, he was a person who had this constant physical pain that he called a thorn in the flesh. He was tortured by government officials and imprisoned and shipwrecked multiple times. Rioting mobs beat him twice that we know of. His opponents were slandering him repeatedly, and yet this is still the same man who can write these familiar words in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord what? Always. I will say it again, rejoice, hard life, a beautiful, joy-filled mind. So let's explore Paul's mind, the way Paul thought. And the first thing I want you to see is what Paul thought about circumstances, circumstances. Now, one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter is because the Philippians had asked how he was doing. I mean, how was he holding up mentally? How was he holding up physically? What about emotionally and spiritually? Because they loved Paul, and Paul loved them. And so they wanted to know, and he wanted them to know how he was doing. And he, he tells them, and as he tells them, we get this amazing wisdom about how we can respond to our difficult circumstances. This is verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So here's Paul's situation. These are the antecedents in his life. He's in chains, and he doesn't want to be in chains. He, he wants to be out preaching the gospel, and not only that, he doesn't know what the consequences of his situation will be, and he says a little later on in this passage, he may die, and then on top of that, as we're going to see in a few moments, there are some Christ followers out there who are preaching the gospel, but they're trying to make Paul look bad, so Paul has a lot of problems. But he also has a renewed mind. And he knows that these Philippians whom he loves, uh, they've heard about his problems. He knows they may be worrying about him. And so he writes in verse 12, I want you to know what has happened to me. And this actually is kind of a standard stock customary phrase 
that was used back then in personal letters. And it usually came very close to the greeting. It was a, an indication that the writer was about to give the main point of what his letter was about. Now, what's noteworthy here is that this is the very first time we see this phrase in a letter written to a whole group of people. And it, it's just a reminder of how close Paul was to these people. And so he tells them what he thinks of his circumstances. He, he tells them he sees his circumstances as ultimately good. Why? Because he knows God is working through them and, and using them. He says, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, in these verses, he speaks about two ways that the gospel is being advanced. And the first is that he himself is getting, uh, having the opportunity to witness to the Roman guards. He, you know, he, he tells us in verse 13 that the whole palace guard understands he's in chains for Christ. We know there were about 9,000 Roman guards. And this is just saying that everybody's talking about this. Paul's witnessing to people. They're telling people, other guards what he's told them. It's, it's spreading and spreading. And, and you just kind of think of it like this. Paul's chained to a guard 24-7. These guys take shifts you know, and so he gets a new, fresh uh, guard to, to share the gospel with. He just keeps sharing. And I, I kind of think when the Philippians heard this, they were probably remembering what happened to Paul in Philippi back when he was starting the church there. I, I mentioned some of this last week. You can go check it out if you haven't yet. It's in Acts 16. And the stories there as Paul was preaching and teaching as he's planting this church. He, he crosses some powerful, wealthy people who had him arrested, stripped, beaten, flogged severely, thrown into prison where his feet are fastened in stocks. He only has Silas with him. He is far from home. He's actually on a brand new continent. This is the first time the church of Jesus made it to what we know today as Europe. And I'm just thinking, if, if that's your circumstance, anyone else think that if it happens to you, you'd be a little anxious? You might be losing some of your peace. But in Acts 16.25, Luke tells us around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And I love the detail that Luke gives us. He's in prison, beaten and flogged. It's midnight, but they're praying and singing to hymns to God. And here's what I love. The other prisoners were listening to them like they had a choice, <laughs> like they could change the channel. You know, I'm going to make an observation here when a, a chain of obsessive worry starts to form in your mind, researchers say that you have about a one-minute window of opportunity to cut it off. And those of you who really wrestle with anxiety, you know that once it, like, wraps its tentacles around you, you can be caught for hours, sometimes even days of obsessive worry. And so you have this one moment to counteract it, to take some kind of decisive action that shuts it off, and that's what Paul does. He starts talking to God. He starts singing to God. He's worshiping God. And as he does this, what he is discovering is that even prison is a perfectly safe place for him to be. Not because it's pleasant. He's in great pain. He's utterly humiliated. But because he knows, he knows, he thinks in his mind, the truth is this. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. So this is how Paul thought. This is what he, he thought about his hard and painful circumstances. He doesn't see them as, as obstacles. He actually sees them as opportunities for the gospel. And I kind of think it was like this. Every time a new guard shows up to start his shift, Paul's thinking, you know what, buddy? I'm not chained to you. You're chained to me. 
And let me tell you about Jesus, how wonderful and beautiful and amazing Jesus is. And when you just think about it, I mean, how else would the gospel have gotten and penetrated so deeply into this part, this influential part of Roman society so that it could spread from there? Then the second way the gospel is advancing was that Paul's boldness was just contagious. As other believers learned about his circumstances, God was strengthening them to speak boldly. That's what verse 14 says. Believers have become confident in the Lord. They, they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And so now dozens, maybe hundreds of, of believers are sharing Jesus. And just think about it. That's continued on for 2,000 years. Paul's boldness has been inspiring people now all around the world, all the way down to 2021 in Tracy, California, where you can read about it and you can be encouraged and you can be inspired. And what we're seeing in this is just such an important principle. It's taught throughout the Bible in story after story. In fact, you might want to write this down. Uh, God accomplishes his purposes, not in spite of hardship, but through hardship. And of course, the ultimate example of this is the cross of Christ. I mean, just think about it. Nothing worse could ever happen than the world rebelling against its creator. But when God's son comes in love, sinful people still respond by killing him out of hatred and pride. And yet we know while the cross is the most ugly display of our sin, it is also the most beautiful display of God's grace. Because there on the cross, Jesus took on our sin to wipe it away. There on the cross, Jesus won victory through his sacrifice. There on the cross, Jesus displayed his perfect love and justice. And that is why Paul can be imprisoned but still have the joy of a free man. It's because of his faith in a crucified, risen Jesus. So I want to emphasize this. Faith doesn't mean believing in something, just mean believing in something you can't see. Far more fundamentally, faith is looking at things from a different perspective altogether and thinking different ways. See, Paul, he was in prison, but he didn't think I'm a captive. He thought, you're my captive audience. Paul can think, you know, <laughs> you didn't drag me to this place I didn't want to go. I got escorted to the place I wanted to go all along, and Rome paid for it. He, he can think, you know, your persecution isn't slowing Christ's mission. It's actually advancing it even more. And I just want to ask this question. What in your life right now, today, do you need to see from God's perspective? How do you need to think? What do you need to believe to think in order that God can work through your circumstances and advance the gospel? See, we all have chains in our lives, right? Circumstances that are difficult, challenging, overwhelming. But the ultimate question really is how do we think about them and therefore how do we respond to them? And I'm telling you that's true even during a pandemic. I mean, have you stopped to think lately what it is your sovereign, loving, gracious, merciful God might be doing in and through your life, through your hardships? Have you asked yourself that question? See, this is Paul's mind. This is how Paul thought. Let me show you a second thing about Paul's mind. This is what Paul thought about adversaries. Verses 15 through the first half of verse 18 says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, we don't really know exactly what he's talking about. Apparently, there were some people who followed Christ, but they weren't exactly in Paul's corner. And they're, they're, they're probably not false teachers because Paul had other words for that, and he spoke out very strongly against that. But it seems that he's talking about genuine Christians who are actually proclaiming the genuine gospel, but their motives are off. And what's probably going on here is that in Paul's absence, there are other preachers who are jockeying for position. They're putting Paul down to build themselves up, and we don't know the details. What we do know is how Paul feels about it, and Paul's feelings can be summed up in two words. Who cares? Or if you want to have a different translation of it, big deal. If you want to know the Greek, the Greek is actually two words, very short words, tigar. And if you want to transliterate it because you just like to write stuff down because you can show someone you know some Greek words and that means you're kind of smart, you can write it down, T-I-G-A-R, just like it sounds. That's what Paul is saying here. I don't care. And it's not that Paul didn't think that their motives mattered. He wrote many times about motives. What didn't matter to Paul was Paul. I mean, someone promoting Christ while putting him down, who cares? Big deal. Tigar. I mean, as long as they're promoting Christ, because Paul thought it wasn't about him. It's not about his ego, not about his reputation, not about his honor. It's all about Christ. I was thinking about this. I think this is an important word for some of us, maybe those of us who have been hurt by other Christians. Because I think this reminds us that Christ's body, the church, is imperfect at its best and sometimes damaging at its worst. It also reminds us of something important. And I wonder if someone here this morning right now needs to hear this. It reminds us that we should not give up on the church and Christ's mission just because of some sinful brothers and sisters. So I just want to ask, how much joy do you lose by worrying and obsessing about people who don't like you? People who may try to put you down, who may try to make you look bad so that they can look good. As you follow Jesus, do not let other people derail you. You do not have to lose your joy. And I'm telling you, it all comes down to how you think. How you think. Because if, if all that matters to you is Christ and his gospel advancing, who cares what other people think or say? You can still be filled with joy. This is just reminding us of something very important that we need to, I think here, especially in 2021, the gospel cannot be stopped. The kingdom of God is advancing. Nothing is going to thwart it. The gospel will advance no matter what. God will accomplish his purposes, not in spite of hardship, but through hardship. In Philippians, we see the gospel cannot be stopped by imprisonment. The gospel cannot be stopped by adver adversaries. The gospel cannot be stopped even when Christians sin. And we see today the gospel cannot be stopped by disease or by recession or by government or by anything else. God wants his gospel to advance, and he wants to do it through us. And that's how we should look 
at adversaries, opposition, even enemies. Third thing that we see as we explore Paul's mind is what Paul thought about himself. This is the second half of verse 18 through verse 20, and he writes, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So what does Paul think about himself? Well, we've seen that when it comes to whether he receives honor, he he just says, who cares? But when it comes to whether his life honors Christ, he says, that's everything. See, his number one goal is to live in such a way that he's not ashamed. And the way he feels that he could be ashamed was if he brought shame on Christ. How does that play out? Look at these verses. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. And again, we see this defiant joy despite imprisonment, despite adversaries. He says, I will choose joy. Someone here needs to choose joy today. I'm just saying. Amen. Someone needs to choose joy. And then verse 19 tells us he's trusting that God is in control. And he's confident that through the Philippians prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit gives him that all his circumstances will result in his deliverance. He says, I know my deliverance is coming, but here's what I want you to understand. When we read that, we probably think he's talking about getting out of prison. But the word deliverance here is actually the same word that in the New Testament is most often translated salvation. And it's a term that's often used for ultimate deliverance. And we know he's not just talking about getting out of prison because of verse 20. Verse 20 tells us that he wants Christ to be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. And it's like he is saying, whether I get delivered from prison or I get delivered into eternal life, I'm going to get delivered. A little over a year ago, very famous African-American pastor, Tony Evans. Maybe you read some of his books. Uh, many of you have listened to um, his messages, seen him on YouTube or somewhere. But a little over a year ago, he lost his wife, Lois, to cancer. And it was actually early in January last, last year that there was a funeral service, and because of his prominence and because of their church and the size of the church. This was an online service that went out where a lot of people could see it. And I actually got to watch part of that. And I heard as part of that service, one of his sons, Jonathan Evans, he, he was speaking about how he was, had been wrestling with God because she'd had cancer for some time. And he was talking about how he had been asking God why he wasn't answering his prayers, all these prayers that he'd offered because God, he said, you know, it promised us victory. And then he talked about why hadn't you answered God these prayers, all these prayers, thousands of people were praying for my mom and all these churches in this area praying for her healing. And he said, as I wrestled, he said, it was like the Lord said to him this, Jonathan, just because I didn't answer your prayer, your way, doesn't mean I didn't answer your prayer anyway. And then he said, God said to him, because of the victory that I've given you, there were always only 
two answers to your prayers. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of or she was going to be well taken care of. And I'm just telling you, if we were in that church, you guys would be making a lot more noise right now. Victory belongs to me, the Lord said to Jonathan. And because of what I've always already done for you, the two answers to your prayers are always yes and yes. And Paul understood that. That's why whether he lived or whether he died wasn't of ultimate significance to them. Paul knew the truth of this phrase that's so familiar to us now. It's not about you. And that's why he had a beautiful mind. That's why he had a beautiful mind. Here's the final thing that we see about Paul's mind, and it's this, what Paul thought about life itself. Verse 21 says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So here's Paul's reality, his antecedents. As a prisoner in chains for his faith, he didn't know whether he was going to live or die. He didn't know whether he's eventually going to be released or be executed. But he had this singular thought about his life on earth. You see, Paul's mind worked in this life-changing way because Paul thought, actually, of life and death for him in Christ as a no-lose scenario. Live, die, no matter. Both were fine. Why? Because, as he said... To live is Christ and to die is gain. And friends, you're so familiar with those words. They may have become kind of, you may have become kind of numb to them, but it's such a stunning line to think about, and it is so true. In fact, it is also our memory verse for this week. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. It's to be in relationship with Christ. It's to be on mission for Christ. It's to have the privilege of serving Christ. And to die well, that's even better. Why? Paul would say because to die just means more of Jesus, more of Christ. Full union with Christ, full intimacy with Christ, freedom from sin, freedom from pain, an eternity in heaven with all the beauty and the joy of God's home, everything God has to offer through heaven. You know, C.S. Lewis once wrote, this life is just shadows. Real living hasn't even begun yet. But for Paul, that wasn't even all. He knew that to die was gain because even if he were martyred, he knew it would fuel the early Christian movement, the gospel, even more. And so what Paul is saying to the Philippians is this, I may die, and I want you to know that. And eventually, of course, that is what happened. Paul was put to death in Rome. He's facing that head on. But he says to them, here's what I want uh, what I think about that and what I want you to think about that. 
if I get to live on the one hand, I'll be connected to people I love. I'll get to watch you grow, and I'll get to partner with you in God's kingdom. But on the other hand, I could die. The Romans could kill me. And and that sounds scary because death is the enemy. But actually, Philippians, when I think about it, when Rome says they're going to kill me, what they're really, really saying is they're going to send me to the place where there will be no more tears or sorrow, no more sickness, no more chains, where this thorn in the flesh that I've been carrying around all these years will finally be removed, where there will be no more guilt, no more regret, no more shame, where there is Jesus, who for so long now I have served and I have seen through a glass darkly. I will see him face to face, where I will know an eternity of unending growth and joy and delight where every day will be brighter than the day that came before. That's their big threat. Oh, Rome, I am so scared. That's how Paul thought. That's Paul's mind. You see, maybe you could think of it this way. Here are the ABCs of Paul's spiritual life. Paul's antecedent. Life is hard. Paul's belief. Jesus is Lord. Paul's consequence, I will rejoice. See, it all comes down to what you think. Is Jesus Christ Lord? Is your life safe in the hands of a great and good God? I mean, everything rides on that. And this was Paul's mind. But let's be honest with ourselves. We do not often think that way, do we? And I think this comes up to the surface most clearly in this matter of death because death, especially in 21st century America, is the one thing we do not see as gain. We hold on to life. We cling to life. We make death the great evil, death the great catastrophe, death the great loss. And even even for those who follow Christ sometimes, sometimes they act and feel this way. It's like we live as Christians, but when we face death, all of a sudden we become like we're atheists. We fight it and we mourn it as if it were the end. But Paul, he wasn't afraid of death. He understood that death was just a doorway to eternal life. So his confidence and his joy could remain. I was reminded this week of another believer in the fourth century, a few centuries after Paul. Uh, He was a very famous pastor and theologian named John Chrysostom, and Just this great preacher, um, and at one point in his life, because of the way he was preaching the gospel, the empress of the empire threatened to banish him. And this is what he said. It's this epic response. He said this, if the empress wishes to banish me, let her do so, for the earth is the Lord's. If she wants to have me sawn asunder, I will have Isaiah for an example. If she wants me to be drowned in the ocean, I can think of Jonah. If she throws me in the fire, the three men in the furnace, they suffered the same. If cast before wild beasts, I will remember Daniel in the lion's den. And if she wants me to be stoned, I have before me Stephen, the first martyr. If she demands my head, let her do so. John the Baptist shines before me. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall leave this world. The apostle Paul reminds me, if I still please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. That's what he said 
the most powerful person in the world. And it's an amazing statement, and it comes, don't miss this, it comes from how John Chrysostom thought. It was kind of like he was saying, you can't do anything to me, and anything you try to do is just going to make me stronger. If you kill me, I get to be with Jesus. If you let me live, I get to preach the gospel to more people. If you strip me naked, I'm clothed in Christ. If you take my money, I'm rich in Christ. If you take my life, Jesus gives me eternal life. It's like trying to blow out a fire, and all you do is make the flames hotter. You see, Southwinds, I want you to know today that you do not have to be afraid of even death. Even in the middle of a pandemic where almost half a million people have died so far. Let me ask you, just think about this. What if you got the coronavirus? What if death was coming soon for you? I was kind of reminded of this reality yesterday. This is uh, not in any way a typical Saturday. I don't think it's ever happened in my 35 years of ministry before, but I actually helped to officiate at two memorial services yesterday. I, I kind of got that reminder standing next to a a beautiful wooden box about this big and you know what was inside someone's life reduced to that I, I got this reminder of the inevitability of death that we all die eventually and so think about it whether it's this week or next month because of the coronavirus or whether it's decades later we all have to face death but here's the good news. Because of the gospel, you do not have to be afraid. You, too, can say, like Paul, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And see, the reality is this. Paul was such a person that he actually would much rather die and be with Christ. That's his ultimate desire, to know Christ fully, to experience Christ's presence eternally. But what Paul ends up saying is, it's not time for that yet. I need to stay. Why? Well, Paul would have answered, because there's still work to do. And so Paul's desire in the moment actually ends up being, he wants to continue with the mission that God has given him. So what does he mean when he says to live as Christ? Well, I think there are three insights in these verses that we can see to explain that. The first thing he means is that it is a life of fruitful labor. Do you see that phrase, fruitful labor? It's in verse 22. There's kind of a lot of tension built into that because, you know, everybody wants fruit, but nobody really wants to labor, right? <laughs> we want joy and peace, but we don't want to sacrifice and serve. But here's the reality. Fruit without labor is shallow. It doesn't last. It's not very good. But labor without fruit is also not good. It just leads to despair, working hard and seeing nothing happen. So living for Christ is for where we enter into this, this tension of fruitful labor. We know it's not supposed to be easy because we live in a fallen world. And yet at the same time, we also know that God is doing this beautiful work of redemption. And we get to be a part of it. And so we embrace this tension and we keep laboring and we keep trusting God to bear fruit. Living for Christ, fruitful labor. Second, it also means a life lived for others. Look at verse 24 where Paul says, It is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. 
And what I want you to notice here is that Paul is thinking not about what's best for him, about what's best for others. And just take a guess, where would Paul have gotten that idea? Where would he have learned to think like that? And of course, the answer is obvious, Jesus. Jesus is the one who came as the servant of all, even though he was the Lord of all. Jesus was the one who laid down his life and gave his life up so that we could live. Jesus was the one who denied self for others, and that's exactly what Paul is doing, living life for others. Third, to live as Christ also means a life lived for joyful progress. Joyful progress. He says in verse 25, I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And I I love that he puts those two words in the same breath here because those are actually two of the key themes throughout the book of Philippians, progress and joy, progress and joy, joy and progress, joy and progress. But what's absolutely unique is the way these two are held together I mean, where else do you see joy and progress together like this? I think some of us might be thinking that they, they sort of work like this. There's, there's joy at the end of progress. You know, like you work hard and, and then you get the reward of joy. But I think what we're say, seeing here is that joy is not the finish line. Joy is the engine that gets us to the finish line. Joy compels us and moves us forward so that we can make progress for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God. And here's how Paul thought. Paul evaluated his life on how he was contributing to the progress of the gospel. Do you ever ask yourself that question? How is my life contributing to the progress of the gospel? This is how Paul thought. And he wanted the Philippians to think that way. That's actually what verse 26 is about, where he says he wants his work among them to lead to to this abounding of boasting in Christ on account of me. So how should we think about life itself? Well, like Paul, we should care more about the progress of the gospel than ourselves. We should value being with Christ more than life itself. But we should be willing to remain on this earth as long as God has work for us to do because that's where our joy comes from, from living for God and his kingdom. And I think you need to understand that God's glory, God's work is not competing with our joy. Actually, our praise is the overflow of our joy. When we delight in God, we thank God and rejoice. That's worship. And so what we are choosing to do, what Paul did, is we are choosing to worship through these trials. We are choosing to praise through our hardships. We are choosing to rejoice even in the middle of a pandemic because we see how good God is and we see how good he's been to us. And this, this is where I want to remind you, Southwinds, today of our true source of joy. The reason why we can have joy beyond circumstances, joy beyond health, joy beyond wealth, it is because our joy is rooted in Christ and what Christ has done for us. It's the gospel. And it's the gospel that brings us its joy. And it's going to cultivate joy in you more and more and more throughout your life. And so I want to close by reminding you, or maybe for some of you, maybe you haven't heard it. I want you to hear it for the first time. I want to close by proclaiming to you this good news of great joy. That we, the Bible says, that we were sinners. 
that we had rebelled against a good God and we thought we were smarter than him and we tried to do things our own way and all it led to when all we had done, we had just worked ourselves into a mess and in that midst of all of that, God sent his son for us. God responded to us with mercy and love and Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He was perfectly just. He was perfectly kind, perfectly loving. He did everything for the glory of God. And yet, and yet, Jesus took that perfect life and he offered it up as a sacrifice for us. Jesus died on the cross, not for himself because he had no sin to die for. He died for our sins. He was the substitute for us on the cross. He took our place and he bore our punishment so that we could have life, true life, eternal life. He died so that we might live and then God the Father raised him from the dead. He's alive today. And so this means Jesus is not just a historical figure that we look back on as an example. He's a living Savior we can know today, and our joy comes from him, and he's alive. And that means our source of joy is unending and abundant. And so I want to call you today to look to Jesus and trust in Jesus. You need him, especially in hard times like these, knowing that trusting in Christ in hard times, that what is what produces perseverance and endurance and growth in our lives. Jesus, we need him. We live for him. We need the gospel. We live for the gospel. That, friends, is how we live a joy-filled life. And never forget, it all comes back to how we think. It all comes back to how we think. Let's pray.